Welcome to The Big Beatles Sort Out, a show in which I, author and musician Gary Abbott, attempt to finally decide my favourite Beatles recordings by scoring each and every one for lyrical content, musicality and production, assisted by my brother and resident Beatles expert, Paul Abbott. Each episode we explore and score five songs pulled at random from the Beatles' full recording catalogue. Thanks for joining us as we try and sort out The Beatles. Welcome to episode 30 and welcome to another clue for you, Paul Abbott. Oh, <laughs> very good, very enigmatic, very mysterious, very strange. As it should be. Yes. Um, don't forget, you can keep in touch with us at big underscore sort on Twitter and Instagram or by email to bigbeetlesortout at gmail.com. And please do drop us a review on whatever platform you're listening on and a rating and all that stuff. Also, there's links in the podcast description to various projects of mine uh, and things like that. And Paul, is there anything specific you'd like to pull out from those links and tell people about? Uh, just uh, get to the head ballet and listen to my new episode and all the old episodes. And we should reiterate again about being on the weekly, weekly yes. podcast as well, shouldn't we? Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll do that then. I'll do that, I suppose. Yes, you we were, we appeared on the weekly, weekly podcast Um which would be the week before last when you're listening when this was released. So, uh, yeah, go and have a listen to that and his other guests. It was a good interview, and it was also done on video. So there's a YouTube version out there to to look at us, if you dare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so right, okay. Well, Paul, on this Beatles ah. day, on this Beatles day, which should be the nineteenth of April, mm. if I've got my planning right. Uh, 19th of April, and I've picked 19th of April 1968 as my example Beatles Day. And that's the day that the um, the Beatles, or rather Apple, puts out the famous Send Us Your Tapes advert. So mm-hmm. that gets sent out to the music press, and I think it appears in like The Enemy and, and Record Mirror and things like that the next day. Yeah. But uh, so famously, this was part of Apple's remit was going to be, oh, anyone can send us anything and get a chance to have it looked at and we might give them some money. Yeah. And so there's this famous picture of, of basically it's a guy with a bass drum on his back and it's got uh, he's playing a guitar. He's, he's sat next to a tape recorder with a euphonium and a trumpet and all this stuff all s- mm. scattered around him. And it just says at the top, this man has talent. One day he sang his songs to a tape recorder borrowed from the man next door. In his neatest handwriting, he wrote an explanatory note, giving his name and address, and, remembering to enclose a picture of himself, sent the tape, letter and photograph to Apple Music, 94 Baker Street, London, W1. If you are thinking of doing the same thing yourself, do it now. This man now owns a Bentley. (laughs) And... (laughs) Yeah, uh, it's actually, it's Alistair Taylor, who was like the general manager of Apple, just all dressed up with all this stuff on him. And right. of course, so you know what happens if you put that in the press? Yeah, everyone they get sends everything. Everything, scripts, yeah. film ideas, tape upon tape upon tape of, of people trying to get. And I'm pretty sure that it's the case that not a single one of those submissions got anywhere. Oh, dear. Because I don't think anyone actually wanted to sit and sift through this stuff. No. I remember you know, hearing on something, or I can't remember what it was, so you, you might remember, someone saying what actually happened at the end of the day was a few tapes of people who were expected to be sending in by someone. You know, someone who knew someone said, there's a tape going to be in the box, can you look for that? Kind of got listened to, maybe. Yeah. Which is just the same as ever. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's. I, I can't tell how much of it was just a bit of a... I don't know a bit of a gag in a way, a bit of a, mm. uh, just a, a little bit of media noise to make. 
to to drum up attention to this this organization apple yeah and how much of it was genuinely and it'll be mccartney i've no doubt mm. thinking oh yeah we can do this we can we can help people yeah but then just not having the follow-through <laughs> yeah yeah and realizing why it is it's so hard to get through because there's so many people trying to do it yeah so. yeah yeah it's um i was like the idea of it but i yeah i don't think it turned into anything and i and you also think that well they'd have been better sending people out to scout wouldn't they really and to, to just go to the small clubs around the country and look look for people rather than yeah so, but yeah. then they would have been doing what the record industry had been doing oh, anyway doing. Yeah, yeah, just, to... the a sort of scouts and people like that and they were trying to do something it's it's, it's noble it was always yeah. noble in, in intention but it, like so much if without actually a business person there Yes, yeah. You couldn't do do anything, or a business person originating the idea, and perhaps, a, you know, how do you advise a Beatle? You know, it's very difficult. Yeah. Oh, oh well. Well, we'll stick that famous image up on our Instagram and whatnot, mm-hmm. um, if we, I, you remember to do that, because <laughs> I won't. <laughs> okay. Um, but thanks for that, Paul. Let's get on with the random picks then. And first up, we have Glass Onion. I told you about the war is for me. Glass onion, Paul. Yes, glass onion, Gary. It's it would have been too easy for me to just say something stupid like porcelain celery. Parsnip. Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> lead celery's better. Lead celery, um, okay. So yeah, this is a track from uh, the White Album, The Beatles, twenty second of November, nineteen sixty eight, when that's released. This is recorded uh, on the eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth, and sixteenth of September, nineteen sixty eight. A Lennon song, and it's a great one for. References is a great one for mm. taking the Mickey out of the conspiracy theorists that are around. Mm. They they knew what they were doing with this. It wasn't like Lennon was sort of going, "Oh, I'll just reference my own songs innocently." He knew what he was doing, and um, it's it's a really interesting song to analyse for a whole bunch of reasons. The sort of cleverness of the arrangement, some of the stuff, and it's uh, uh, it's got a sort of great white album sound to it. It's a it's an interesting one, Glass Onion. Certainly is. Um, yeah, so from a music point of view, we get quite a no-nonsense no intro from Ringo with his little snare double double hit thing. I don't know. I suppose it's a roll of a kind. And it goes straight from that into a quite a dark-edged rock. It's still sort of psychedelia, isn't it? Rock psychedelia. Yeah, well, I was thinking about this because we, we always sort of say, you go, Sergeant Peppers is psychedelia. And then you say, well... Magical Mystery Tour, I've always talked about being that sort of dark yeah. edge psychedelia. There's, uh, And then it does tend to just drop away almost completely, except that if you look at the White Album, there's enough moments on there where it hasn't totally phased out of their behaviour yeah. as yeah. songwriters. Yeah. And this is one example of of that through line of that sort of psychedelic idea. From a musical point of view, it's, it's definitely got that uneasy, like that, uneasy kind of uh, feeling that from Magical Mystery Tour you've spoken about before in a good way, like a, you know, an edgy way. It's yeah, dark, mysterious. 
and it does i think put, there's a lot of chromatic movement in the sort of chords and shapes and bass lines and things in this which makes it a bit yeah. creepy and eerie as well it's also one where you you kind of when you're analyzing it you think how does it sound as heavy as it does because a lot of the rhythm is actually on a pretty cleanish guitar and although there's a that kind of a few stabs and bits of lead which are kind of distorted mm. but i think what it is is the combination of john's kind of distorted vocal because his vocals being kind of pushed or get it's quite gainy isn't it to make him sound quite hot quite yeah, hot. hot 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 microphone and um paul's really clangy bass in a good way yeah. like metallic clangy really um lots of uh, what's the word for all that all the scratchy noises and clanging noises well, it's sort of the the, the fretboard, fret, isn't it? Yeah. Sort of the fretboard and fingerboard noises when you've got the the gain up at a certain level, you pick up all of those bits. Yeah, you get that, and that and that along with Ringo's kind of strict but big beat, which again is quite well, high and gainy as well. That's that. This is the interesting, the most interesting thing about the uh, arrangement, I think, is that Ringo obviously sounds great on this, but he's playing mm. a really weird drum kit. So he's got his normal drum kit but it's been augmented so he's got two bass drum pedals okay and a load of extra toms and cymbals on there for some reason they've they just decided to put together a massive kit for ringo for this one <laughs> why not so so is ringo doing double bass pedal on this is he the first metal yeah, this is the first uh thrash metal <laughs> beatles song no i don't think he's playing double i don't think he's playing double bass pedal here but it may be yeah. that i yeah, Maybe so they've chained them together so he gets a double bass pedal hit with every... I don't. I just don't know what what the thinking was because it's not like he's doing tons of eccentric tom fills so he's no, using no, it's, like it's, five toms. But It's quite a subtle part. And as in, it's not very... Not subtle. I mean, it's very loud, but it's... Um, he's, it's not complicated. It's not it's complex, not. yeah. He's, he's, it's quite a straight, like I say, strict, straightforward rock drum going yeah. on behind there. But then what happens from from that is we get into all those added bits of dramatic kind of music overlay with the like you're saying the chromatic but legato strings kind of bending yeah. you know in and out to kind of give you that warped psychedelic feeling and then the piano that joins in on the oh yeah sections to build us up i mean musically those work really well and transform quite you know a good few rock chords into a, a wonky rock kind of fever dream of a kind of section really and I especially like the use of the flute when they reference Fool on the Hill. Recorder. Recorder, recorder please. Sorry, recorder. I knew it was something that you blew into. Um, well, they uh, did at one point, though, in because it references Strawberry Fields, at one point they did put on a Mellotron overdub with ah, the, right. flute, the flute setting from Strawberry Fields, but they ended up taking that off. So. Ah, maybe one, one uh, reference joke too many. Possibly. Uh, yeah, but yeah, the um, and the meandering string section of the outro, uh, you know, that kind of wobbles off, which we'll talk in production about how that goes off, but that the way it just stops and we get, end up with this meandering string pattern going up and down and up and down yeah. as you kind of fade out of consciousness. It's a cool bit of music, I think, really. John delivers it with a snarl and a real passion when he starts kind of like doing the oh yeahs and going for it in the screams as it builds and crescendos. It's got loads of character and mood. Um, so yeah. I'm going to give it 85 for music. Production then, so a lot of cool stuff in here. Um, we talked about Paul's bass. Do we know what bass, or is there anything specific that's going on with that? Or is just uh, we will know, but I don't have it written down at okay. the moment. I imagine it is the uh, the Rickenbacker, yeah. yeah, turned turned up a lot, probably with the mutes down. Um, 
But now someone will tell me it's probably his fender on this one, so who knows? I haven't got it to hand. No, it's a good. It's good anyway. It's it's, a, it's very good, and obviously the strings are brilliant. Is there anything? I mean, one thing I was going to ask you about, you know, is the way that the ends with that string outro, and it sounds like someone's either physically kind of holding the tape to make it slow down, or or kind of using a pitch slider bender, kind of. No, it's it's, it's all in performance. It's all in performance. Oh, the way it bends the, the, at the end, the very, you know, the outro is it's fading away. It yeah. kind of wobbles off to kind of like the tool, the oh. tape spooled off or something. Uh, yeah, it does a little bit, but I don't think that's more than just, you know, a studio okay. fade in a particular thing. So it's not like they've gone and sort it out to make an effect particularly. I don't think. Did Martin do all of the uh, the stringy bits? Do we think? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing with those strings, which play these weird. Um, well, diminished chords at the end. The diminished chords, just a stack of minor thirds, so it sounds very odd and, and weird. Um, that replaced a load of sound effects that Lennon had put together. So he'd made a sound effects okay. tape because you know that was in his yeah. in his mind at this time. And of course, Revolution Nine. So it would have been weird if they'd have left the sound effects tape on because it would have been like a little bit of Revolution Nine had escaped <laughs> and, and infected an earlier song. But mm. yeah, they get rid of that and then they put in basically four violins, two cellos, and uh, two violas. And yeah. just have those little sort of padding moments in the song and then that, that weird up and down bit at the end. I just think the strings sound brilliant with those big long um bended bendy notes, you know, the big the big um uh, slides up and down. It's just they're just great. Um production wise I just think I think it does sound it's pretty good, isn't it? You know, I think the push to kind of distortedness of some of the parts is absolutely purposeful in this. Yeah, it's it's just good white album production. It's sure it's is. very much if you if you wanted to give a demonstration of what the white album sounds like sonically, mm. this is a good one to show. Yes, and for that reason, I'm giving it eighty eight point five for production. Eighty eight point five. Okay, on to lyrics then. So it's saying something when you can be so sure of your place in history already that you can write a song about your own songs, and it not really seem egotistical or inaccessible. You know, I think if someone else did this at the wrong point in their career, it would sound a bit like, oh, well, you know, what does it, either what does this all mean? Or, okay, get get over yourself. But I, I think because of this, they were so big and they did have that surrounding world, like you, you mentioned, of a fan theories and yes conspiracies, that it, it really plays into that. But apart from that, the simple phrase, glass onion, now... I haven't done any research, as always, because that's that's for you, and I've tried to be the impartial observer. Well, not impartial, but the uh, the casual observer. You're entirely partial. I am very partial. But um, is Glass Onion a Lennonism, or is it something he well, I, found? Well, I'm not entirely... The phrase itself, Glass Onion, you look at people's theories about this, and they're saying, well, there's, perhaps there's a type of light fitting that's called a Glass Onion. Hmm. And I don't know if that's been sort of retrofitted to the notion of this song. I don't think it is. I think he's just come up with Glass Onion. I mean, if you want to think about Glass Onion, it's quite a nice image, because oh, it's, it's the idea of the layers of things. Yeah. But you can see through it. Absolutely, that's what I was so going to say. See one layer. So you think about the fact that it references um, I Am The Warrus, well, mm. I Am The Walrus also references Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. So you're looking through layers of layers here. Yeah. Oh, do I just... I'm what the Walrus reference Lucy in the Sky. See how oh, they, so they fly, fly like, like Lucy, Lucy in the Sky. In the sky. Yeah. yeah, it's layers and layers, of course, yeah. So um, whether that's it... I don't know whether it's just coincidence of a, a nice Lennon-y sort of idea, glass onion, and, or 
I think the phrase in itself, without any other words, is already genius. I think that the idea of a glass onion is the kind of thing that, you know, it's like the Emperor's New Clothes, isn't it? It's it's a great metaphor. It's saying, oh, that's a glass onion, that is. It seems like it's layered, but you can see straight through it. It's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Um, But then by having come up with such a brilliant phrase, it is quite layered. (laughs) It is quite deep. Um, I think it's really clever um, as a metaphor. But yeah, and, and we get to indulge in hearing our favourite groups sing about their own songs and their own legend and offer kind of clues and red herrings about some elusive meanings that, or, or non-meanings that certain sections of their fandom were obsessed with. And it's quite fun to engage with, even if you don't yeah. care. And people are still arguing to this day about whether the walrus was Paul or John, you know. Yeah. And it's it's a funny one, really. It's... He knew exactly what he's doing with this. He knew mm. he was feeding the trolls a little bit mm. by saying, well, I'm just going to give you all this stuff, make you think there's an interconnected world of Beatleness out there. And there isn't. Yeah. You know, but... Yeah, it's, but it's then there weird. is, as much as like by him doing that, he also understood that there is, because everything he committed to tape becomes part of that world. So, yeah, you're saying he's feeding... But it's it's not a part of a grand conceptual continuity no. like yeah. like no Zapper Zappa retrofitted to all of his stuff that he did as uh-huh. he went along. So you'd, you know Zappa would deliberately reference things in music or in lyrics from years before and turn it into this huge conceptual continuity, mm. which is which you don't need to know to enjoy the music. But this is yeah this is the as near as the Beatles ever get to it really. Yeah, I mean so we learn that the war is Paul and we. I mean, they're actually after. Other than that, we kind of just check in on other songs, don't we? We check in on yeah. Lady Madonna, The Fool on the Hill. We fix another hole, um, and I like how it's not just John doing it to his own songs too. It's you know, it's their songs. It's kind of ones where they're obviously poor yeah. ones as well. So, yeah, and then you have uh, Bent Back Tulips, which is a lovely reference to. Supposedly, this is a Derek Taylor story. Is that the Bent Back Tulips line is about? There's a restaurant in London called Parks, which was quite a posh, expensive restaurant, and their, their flower arrangements is one where you, they'd get the tulips, and what you they'd do is they bend the leaves back so the stamen of the tulip is exposed, and mm. you can sort of see the inside of the leaves, mm. which is uh, some weird thing to do to flowers. I don't know why really, but apparently it was a thing, and and so this is. We are led to believe where bent-backed tulips comes from, anyway. Yeah. What about the cast as, iron and, shore? Well, Gary, yesterday. Yeah, you were you were walking we around the cast iron shore. I was walking around the cast iron shore, so I've never been. Well, I sort of have bits of it. The cast iron shore is essentially is right on the River Mersey in South Liverpool, near the Dingle, which is where Ringo grew up, and I had a nice walk around the streets where, around there. Mm. And uh, I went down onto essentially the cast iron shore because you can walk all the way along the front now on a sort of cycle and walking path. And it was called the cast iron shore because of things washing up on there, especially from uh, or there was scrapped ships and things like that. So the rust had come out and it would colour the shore. There's a couple of different theories about it. It's essentially... What little beach Liverpool has is this bit of mud and rocks along this stretch, which is the cast iron shore. Oh, which we've been to as well, haven't we? Aren't you? I've been for a walk up there with you. Uh, I don't think we have. It's not, it's not where the Gormleys is, is it that a different part? No, that's up in North Liverpool. Oh, uh, okay. It's, it's, this is South Liverpool. This is. You know, I could imagine Liverpool. it from that part, so I, if it's anything like that, then I No, can it's see. nothing like that. Oh, well. It's, it's tiny. It's a tiny little bit of, oh, okay. uh, of muddy sand, essentially. Fair enough. By where the docks used to be up, to, up in that bit of town. 
very good poetic phrase though so yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's a funny one in some ways because it it is a nice tour through songs so it's a bit of a gimme in in a way in the fact that they had one of these in them at least they could get away with and they did it um, but i like it all the same so i'm going to give it 77 for lyrics which gives it 83.5 overall right yeah next we have maxwell's silver hammer but as she's getting ready to go a knock comes on the door Maxwell Silver Hammer came down upon her head. Bang, bang, Maxwell Silver Hammer made sure that she was dead. Maxwell Silver Hammer, Paul, is a great song, and I will fight anyone who tells me otherwise. Uh, even John Lennon, okay. <laughs> even even George Harrison, even Ringo Starr, all of whom expressed opinions about this. Right. So anyway, Maxwell's Silver Hammer is a McCartney song from the Abbey Road record, which comes out on the 26th of September 1969. It is recorded for the purposes of this on the 9th, 10th and 11th of July 1969 with some extra stuff on the 6th of August. But of course, this is one that you hear and see them doing in the Get Back sessions as well. So this has been hanging around a long time. So by the time they actually get around to recording it for Abbey Road, although they do a great job of it, mm. certainly George and and Ringo were just fed up of how long this thing had, had been around and, yeah. and how long it basically took them to eventually just get it done. Yeah, I've heard those stories. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's got it's got... A reputation within the band itself as being a McCartney nuisance song right. that, that seemed to take forever for them to get get it done. But I think a lot of that is bound up in the fact they were trying to do it during the Get Back and Let It Be sessions. Mm. And it was, if anything, was slightly miserable. It was just that they couldn't get it going and yeah, it was just hanging around and being a bit irritating and not being as good as the other stuff at the time. Okay. But then they do it for, for Abbey Road and it's brilliant. <laughs> and I love it. Okay. Uh, so I might kind of um, be a little bit with the guys here. Um, oh, a little bit with the guys. Yeah, uh, me, 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 George. You know, John and Ringo have been talking, and uh, no, I. But my problem with this, I, I'm jumping ahead slightly. Is it's I don't like the theme. I don't like it. I don't think it. I, I understand the let's do something dark and grim to a jolly kind of bouncy backing but i don't I just have always creeped it's always creeped me out this song never liked it but anyway i'm not gonna it's not gonna stop me scoring it because it's not that i don't like bits of it it's just that i'd, I'd never liked its overall idea but we'll get on that's what i'm getting ahead really as far as music goes we have what john may sometimes have referred to as one of paul's granny songs haven't we again here essentially um, in in what what the backing is that the piano is very sort of bump bump yeah Bump, bump, we, bump, yeah. bump, bump. <laughs> yeah, which means we have a nice bounce to it. Um, a frumpy bass line, kind of bouncing between the root chords, you know. George a, playing that. Yeah. Oh, is it George playing the the, uh, yeah. the bass? A piano plonking along, Ringo's tight drums as always, and one of Paul's classic melodies, which is undoubtedly a very catchy melody. Um, we get some great interest joins joins in in the choruses with the kind of um, I guess it's George doing is George doing lead guitar as well or is that Paul? Yeah, George is, is doing the lead guitars on this, and I, I love the guitars. Up, on he this. was doing half of it. 
Well, yeah, he did. I mean, you have to remember, John doesn't play on this at all. Right. So John doesn't appear on this song at all. And he was, was around. <laughs> right, okay. Um, basically, about eight days before this session, they, him and Yoko and Kyoko and Julian had had a car crash in Scotland. Right. And so they were hospitalised. Okay. Uh, but they, they were back for this session, and this is the session where they first bring in a hospital bed for Yoko so she can be in the studio in, in bed okay. while she's recuperating. But yeah. so they were there, but took no part. You know, John took no part in this session. Yeah, because right. um, I knew he was fed up with it, and he didn't even play on it. But yeah, George is doing some great stuff, though. Isn't I he? love it. It's because he's he's overdubbing with these with George's lead guitar. He's doing these beautiful harmony guitar parts. Really, yeah. so George is brilliant when he and sometimes when you when you criticise George solos, sometimes it's because he's not had time to work them out. When yeah. you give George Harrison time to really nail a solo. Or a bit of guitar work. He comes up with brilliant stuff, and it, the harmony guitar work here is is excellent. Yeah, and it's got the same kind of sound as the um, a lot of Abbey Road and things like Octopus's Garden. He's got that great tone. But um, anyway, that's production. Um, yeah, they've got the synth, which is kind of um, they're, they're fun and interesting parts. But it kind of it's almost like they're cycling through the settings. But again, that's for production. Um, but it's adding more interest musically to it as well with the kind of the little uh, effects it puts in and, and the backing it, it 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 has. But the chorus and the whole song is almost like another Yellow Submarine Octopus's Garden style kids song along. Yeah. Song along? Sing, sing along. Song along. <laughs> song along or sing along. But the problem is it's subject matter keeps it out of that bracket, I think. Um, and we have the big vocal ending with the harmonies, which is, which is fun. You get a bit of Ringo singing on that as well. Oh, is he on that? So is John not even singing in there either? No. Unbelievable, John. Um... I say it's a hard one for me because I've always just disliked this song's overall theme and idea, so I've never really rated it much. I don't skip it through it, and it's undeniably memorable and catchy. The music is meticulous and tight, and I know, you know, like you've said, he did have them kind of work it to death a little bit as well, and they were working on it for a long time. So I'm going to give this 62 musically, so it's not a low score, because for for some reason it doesn't have the charm of the other songs of this ilk for me. So things like When I'm 64 and Yellow Submarine, for me, it they, they all converges and comes together to to make the music right for the song. And, and um, But also, I think this one's a bit long as well compared to them. I think it's... Well, you don't it's, have to apologise to me, Gary. You have to apologise to Sir Paul McCartney. Well, if that's the only way I'll get to talk to him, that'd be great. <laughs> I'd, I'd be a bit of a shame, but it'd be better than not talking to him at all. How lovely to meet you. I don't like Maxwell Silverham. <laughs> I've just found it. I've always found it creepy, Paul, but I like the music. But yeah, no. Um, on to production. I can't fault the production, mostly. It's got all that um, Abbey Road shine and gloss. As I say, with the synth, what do you think about the synth thing? Because I think the first... I like the brassy sound and the kind of theremin sound that comes... Because the first verse has a sound, then the second verse has a sound, and yeah. the third one is a bit of a boring, low string sound that doesn't works so well i love the the synthesizer on this so this is george's moog mm-hmm. and it's brand new to them they, yeah. they bring it in it's it's huge i sent you a picture just before we started recording of oh, was that with, that was? with george's moog right yeah um and so they're working it out and experimenting with these sounds and playing and i i really like it because it does some amazing counter melody stuff i, I understand what you mean about they don't settle on a sound they yeah keep sort of changing but it's I like it you know I like these these I don't mind what it's doing counter melody things I think what what it's playing it's fine I think just from a production point of view I don't think they get the third the first two seem to work the third one 
is is a kind of a bit non-distinct, non-distinct, non-descript kind of a stringy kind of synth sound. Whereas the other two, and there's some kind of, is it this this the Moog making the kind of um, occasional? I don't know how to describe them. Just the the whoop sounds is like a yeah yeah. yeah. So a Moog, uh, or certainly the way this is set up, they've got a, a keyboard controller, as in like a piano type keyboard. But mm-hmm. they also have a ribbon controller, and the ribbon controller is a continuous thing where you can move your finger up and down it like um so you can slide between yes, tonalities yeah, rather yeah. than having a fixed pitch that you move from note to note so you can go yeah i hope everyone enjoyed that sound i just made it was very good yes so um yeah it, it, it is fun um so apart, apart from that though there's um there's a few sound effects mainly the metallic bang bang at the yeah, an anvil anvil which would be kind of better or funnier if it wasn't meant to be representing the sound of a hammer smashing somebody's skull and therefore which wouldn't sound like metal could have been metal. much worse sound effects well it yeah i wonder if they tried a version be more accurate yeah they just smashed a watermelon or something and just i guess they would have found it hard to get the uh, get it on the beat but um yeah i'm gonna give it 72 for production is there anything else you think i should we should talk about no i just think it i i like it i think it's well put together but as we keep saying Abbey Road is such a, a, a shiny album. Mm. This is part of that. So. It is. It is. Yeah, it's definitely. I, 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 again, I wouldn't. I wouldn't omit it or skip it. Um, given the choice, it's just. I just. Well, we'll tell you. It's because of the lyrics, which is what I'm onto now. So, Paul, what possessed McCartney to write a song about a man murdering people with a hammer? Well. Is it literally about a man murdering someone with a hammer? Well, is it not? <laughs> no, it's not really. It's conceptual more than anything. It's yeah, he's to- he's done this silly story thing where someone literally is turning up in you know in in the story world. But yeah. it's more about the notion of every time you try and get anywhere, every time you try and do something, you think you're progressing, you're getting on with something in life, and then bang bang, Maxwell's silver hammer comes along. Something comes and derails you. Something comes and sets you back. Okay. So it's conceptually that. Is that is that, I I never have got that just from it, yeah. Um, I don't know. Obviously, it's not meant to be in any way like a real. You know, he murders the judge whilst he's in court, but you know, it's I'll, all I. The only images I've ever had in my head from being a young child to hearing this to now is just people getting brained. <laughs> Like, that's all I can hear. Yes. Well, that's what the words say. Yeah, exactly. And I don't get the feeling of kind of like, ah, oh, I see what he means. What he means is by going on a date with Joan and killing her is sometimes when you go on a date, life hits you over the head with a silver hammer until you're dead. I don't I don't get that. I mean, fair enough. If that's, I'm not saying it isn't, or he doesn't, didn't think that's what it was, but I, as a listener, don't get it. Uh, but I do like it. I do like its quirky, sometimes clever lines. I like the, uh, the, um, the meter of Rose and Valerie sitting in the gallery and Joan was critical, studied metaphysical. They're great. Pata, um, pataphysical. Now pat- that's important. Pataphysical. So if that's important. Metaphysics is a thing. Mm. Okay. Pataphysics is a thing, but isn't a thing. Okay. So pataphysics was this science, and I'm saying science with little bunny ears around it, mm. um, created by this French writer called Alfred Jarry, which was a sort of parody of, of the notion of overcomplicated scientific exploration of things, um, okay. particularly metaphysics. So it's essentially a nonsense science, the science of imaginary solutions. 
Okay. Is what he says. Let let me let me read the quote. So he says, one of the definitions of pataphysics is the science of imaginary solutions, which symbolically attributes the the properties of objects described by the virtuality to their lineaments, (laughs) which means nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Uh, essentially, but McCartney had heard um, a, a BBC radio play of one of uh, Jerry's works, and he'd seen another play staged, mm. uh, which actually starred, I believe, Max Wall, the comedian actor, which could have been a inspiration for Maxwell. Some Maxwell. people have suggested, okay, I see. but pro- I don't know, probably not. But the point is, all this stuff by Jerry was very sort of sort of meaningful and meaningless at the same time it was surreal it was funny and it all and it, so mccartney was a big fan so that's yeah. where the, the the notion of pataphysics so is. i've never known that i've always thought it was studied metaphysical is that because my ears done that to me hearing it and turning it into a yes, word that i know it's never been that it's always been pataphysical oh, okay all right i'll have to check on the um song book that i have the um, complete beatles piano book so it was it, Anyway, not that I would have sat and sang this one because I don't really like it. But essentially, whether it is other things or not, um, yeah, beating people in the head with hammers isn't my bag. So I'm going to give it 40 for lyrics because it creeps me out, um, which gives it 58 overall. So next, I'm down. You tell lies, thinking I can see. You can't cry because you're laughing at me. I'm down. I'm down, Paul. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, Gary. It's been quite a difficult time for a lot of people. Is there anything I could do to help? Just tell me some stuff about this song. Okay, I will. This is the B-side of the Help single, which mm. comes out on the 23rd of June, 1965. This was recorded on the 14th of June, 1965. Now, listen to this, right? 14th okay. of June, 1965 is a session in which they record I'm Down, song mm. we are discussing now, Yesterday, and okay. I've Just Seen a Face. Wow. This is like three massive Macca songs, you know, mm. or brilliant sort of special Macca moments. Um, blimey, that's a lot to produce in a session. Yeah. Imagine singing I'm Down and Yesterday in the same session and it being the same guy using the same, <laughs> yeah. like using his lungs to produce those it's sounds. So All those three songs, he does a different McCartney type of voice for as well, doesn't he? Yeah. He has this yesterday voice, because I have to see in a face voice, it's kind of a, it's kind of a country voice. Kind yeah, of it is. Yeah. So that's, it's, that's ludicrous really. Yeah. Um, but it's McCartney writing a Little Richard style screamer mm. for himself, because he was always singing covers of them. So he wanted to just write one. Mm. And it's, you know, it, it does what it says on the tin. It's a screamer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a nice start from Paul. He actually started off with a scream, doesn't he? Screams us straight into the song. Yeah. With those kind of good old-fashioned rock and roll hits, punctuating the kind of vocal, kind of, you know, everyone hitting the drums and the bass all at the same time to bring us into the uh, chorus and solo sections where the bass guitar and organ I think yeah the Vox Continental so Johnny Johnny Lennon is on the old uh, Vox Continental organ which obviously famously plays when they do it on Shea Stadium 
Ah, uh, of course. Yeah. And he sort of loses his mind and he's sort of playing it with his foot and his elbow and he's, you know, because he's sort yeah. of uncomfortable because it's, as it is, if you're used to having your guitar yeah. in front of you, it's always weird when you don't. Yeah. Um, and so whenever you see them play this, John's got, they take the Vox organ out with them and he always looks really sort of like baffled by what he's doing. <laughs> so he just starts laughing. Yeah. And they're just, they're just smashing it out really, aren't they? For yeah. want of a better word. It's just, it's, it's that kind of a song. Um, I like the way the backing vocals have the, uh, sing the down lyric and the, uh, the fact that they're using a very low bass voice that they don't yeah. do much of, really. You don't hear that very much. No, from them, no, no, you don't. It's it, but it, and it lends a sort of comedy air to this song a little bit. You know, this yeah. is not this is not serious stuff. No, it's is. it's definitely kind of throwaway in in the sense that like yeah, it's a fun live song. Um, yeah, but Paul's giving it his all, and it mostly works. He does it does crack a few times, doesn't he? He's, um, his voice, there's a couple of Yeah, but of I think it's... that's acceptable within the type of performance he's doing. Yeah, yeah. It's not surprising, considering he's really screaming his head off at the, right at the top register, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think if you compare the vocal performance on this to something like Oh Darling, where, as we spoke about him when it came up in a previous episode, he, he went and practised it over and over and over and over again. Because he got out of the habit. At this yeah. point, he was more in the habit still of singing these sorts of songs because yeah. they were still performing live and they were still doing things like Long Tall Sally in every show and things like that. So, Yeah, I think um, they were happy for it to all sound a bit loose and live anyway. I think that's the feeling I get from it because the solo section's a bit like that um, and it does feel a bit like they're banging out a live number and kind of letting loose and being a bit loose with it. it um, I like it. and it's, it, it's very much that mid-strata rock and roll that they were very, very capable of. So I'm going to give it 50 for music. I like the bongos at the end. I like the way they sort of go, do you know what this song needs? Some bongos at the end. Oh. You know? Yeah. I, I, I can't bring them to mind now. I haven't noted that down. Is it just at they're the all end? Just in the, they're all just in the, the mix of the outro as they're just rocking off to the end. Oh, uh, okay. Right. Um, so on to production then. I'm not going to say too much about it, really. There's some... We were talking about the solos. I'm right when the solo comes in, that I can hear a bit of an echo of a previous track or something. Yeah, there's a there's a ghost solo from an earlier yeah. take. Clearly, um, they did seven takes basically to get the song down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've mentioned the ghost guitar solo because you get the guitar solos well in the stereo mix anyway is over off in the left speaker. Yeah, and so you have all that sort of um, playback reverb in the other speaker where you can hear the ghost of a different solo, mm. which. You know, nowadays you wouldn't mix them anything like this and you'd snip out all that stuff yeah. and it would be rubbish. So um, I'll tell you my favourite thing in production here is the fact you can hear John's ha- like hands on the keys. So this Vox Continental organ will have little plastic keys. Yeah. And you can actually hear his hands on the keys. I don't know why, unless he was singing and playing at the same time, which he might have been doing. Because mm. you would have just taken a line out of the keyboard, I imagine. Oh, I see. So the vocal mic was picking up his... Uh... Yeah, the, 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 but it, it might have been that they had the, the organ going through an amp to get a nice sound, and then so that there was more mics around for that. But yeah. I love the fact you can hear his his hands on the keys as he does all his oh. rock and roll keyboard bits. Oh, cool. It, yeah, I mean, it sounds a bit scrappy in places with that kind of thing of, you know, um, I think they're going for that feel. I think they've either decided let's not worry too much, basically, and just make sure as long as it's fast and 
energetic. We'll 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 let ourselves off it being to- totally tight and clean. So yeah, it's it's fine. I'm going to give it forty seven for production. Lyrics, Paul. So every yep. day, every day, Paul, I buy a woman a ring and she throws it away. It's getting pretty expensive now. Uh, and then when I'm alone with said woman, she just keeps on telling me to keep my hands to myself and it's really getting me down. I really, I'm really down. And then she laughs at me, which is even worse. And um, I don't think this is a good basis for a relationship. No. Uh, yeah, rings, things, um, woman, etc., I'm not. There's not much to the lyrics, is there? To... No, and and he happily admits that as well, McCartney. And he said actually, sometimes these songs are the hardest to write because yeah. you try to write nothing. At the, at, at, you know, you've got nothing here. There's no content to them. No. But you need you need to have something to sing. Yes. Yeah. yeah it's better than Bar Bar Black Sheep, isn't it? Um, Although I don't think that he's implying that it's the same man buying a ring. I think he's suggesting it's a universal issue <laughs> that lots of people are doing it. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not just, it's not yeah. just one guy repeatedly yeah, buying a ring. Just, like, will you marry me? He says no. Throws it away. Next day, oh, I'll try again. Buys another one. Drains getting blocked yeah. with discarded rings. Yeah, it's, um, I know. Yeah, but it's still thirty-three for lyrics, um, singular or plural, <laughs> yeah. men and rings. Um, so that gets forty-three point three overall. It's worth mentioning as well that, and this is on the anthology version, like an early take you can hear at the end of it. McCartney saying plastic soul man plastic soul Mm. and that's obviously part of the origin of where the phrase rubber soul comes Mm. from and it was a sort of term that was being ascribed by people to describe people like Mick Jagger you know white guys doing R&B and type stuff okay and McCartney's intoning that and it becomes part of their jokey lexicon that turns into rubber soul ah okay cool right next I'll be back Cause I told you once before goodbye But I came back again I love you so I'm the one who wants you Yes, I'm the one who wants you I'll be back, Paul Are you a Terminator? No, I'm not that's what a Terminator would say. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah it would. Actually, right. they don't really, do they? Because, I mean... I no know one ever says just... the question to him. Are yeah. you a Terminator? <laughs> Maybe Me? <laughs> no. I'll have some human food, please. <laughs> um, go on. No, uh, so this is a track from... <laughs> human food. Uh, it's a track from the Hard Day's Night LP. In fact, it's the last track on the album. It comes out on 10th of July, 1964. This is recorded on the 1st of June, 1964. This is another one that people will know, perhaps the anthology versions. There's a couple of versions on the anthology, like one done in sort of a 6-8 waltz tempo version. And the okay. sort of electric, one they're doing electric guitars, and then they shift in their arrangement to this um, acoustic guitar feel. And yeah, it's a it's a great little Hard Day's Night number. Yeah, Um first thing that happened to me when I listened to it was I got completely confused because my ears kept on hearing and I love her because I was oh, I know I, what you mean because it goes duh, duh, duh. and I was thinking hang on duh, duh, duh. and I was like my, my brain was I'd locked into duh, nah, nah, nah. and I said I'm getting which one is this well, what's and, and I had to listen I had to listen start it twice before I thought no no it's just a different song <laughs> 
Yeah, um, well, if I said to you, though, that the lineup of this song is John on his acoustic guitar, mm. Paul on bass, George on a classical acoustic guitar, and Ringo on drums, well, I could be describing And I Love Her. They're definitely both coming from the same plate of inspiration, I think, or, you know, technique in how they've put it together. Um, and once I'd got that out of, out of my head, um, I was fine with it. But they're like a note away from each other as far as the main hook. The, dif- the difference with this is it's got that, that shift between the minor and the major, which is yeah, the big so that's feature. the most in that's the real key feature to this that makes it s- makes this more unique is that it's got what you would don't normally do in a song, which is you don't normally swap from a minor chord to the same major chord over no. and over again. You're, so in this case, it's like an A minor to an A major. Your music teachers it, would tell you off because it's not allowed. Yeah, but it does create this strange sense of of like. Well, this is what you do. This is why you have particular types of of, of cadences in songs and, and do particular mm. things with, with harmony and things, is you have a sense of conflict and resolution. So you, you have this strange thing where still, you know, the very basic level, it's like, do you resolve onto a major chord? It's happier, yes. quote, happier, you know, or minor chord, it's sadder, quote, mm. sadder, which is not necessarily true. No, it's, it's context dependent. But what, by having the shifting of the A minor to the A major throughout, it does put it in a strange space musically for their yeah. songs. When actually, when you break it down, the weird thing is, this is basically John Lennon rewriting Del Shannon's Runaway. It's the same yeah. chords. Oh, of course, and, yeah. And of course, in Del Shannon's Runaway, I think the middle section is in A major, but the rest of it's in A minor. Yeah, so yeah, Runaway does the thing of having the major come in, doesn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. So the chords are exactly the same. Del Shannon. I, I mean, well, not exactly the same, but it's the same key. It's the same it's same pa- chord patterns, yeah. basically A minor, G, F. Now you've thing. said it, I won't be able to unhear it, but I wouldn't have thought of that. Obviously, he's rewritten it enough for it to be. You know, I'd like to write a song like that, and and not to have. They definitely come out as very different things because. I mean, I love Runaway, and I do think it's a lot, you know, if I, was, I would definitely have it over this one, not that I don't like it, but Runaway is a great song. Oh, I'm that sorry, a- I, was, I, was, I was a deep intake of breath. <laughs> yeah, we must, I mean, Del Shannon's Runaway is a massive Oh, it's hit. a classic, it's, it's absolutely classic. This, is, this is a good Beatles song, but it's not one of their best, best ones, yeah. But, I, I mean, mean it, it, yeah, it, it is album track material. Yeah, yeah, it's nice, it's Spanish, it's Spanish-y, folky. I guess the well, Spanish it's got the classical guitar sound yeah. on it, hasn't That's it? That's the nylon string guitar doing that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The mood, it's a moody acoustic piece. The biggest musical feature, like we said, is the, diff, the shift between major and minor. It's an interesting idea. It takes your ear and mind in a slightly different direction to what you think is going to happen because it keeps on changing. The mid-eight is very nondescript. I, I can never remember it until I hear the song. I couldn't tell you it now. Um, I know the I know the verses and the the choruses, but you know the, the mid eight. You're you're blaming your unfamiliarity with it here. To you're using that as your method for scoring it, which is uh, no, is I don't. A I fundamental just, flaw. I, I think no, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm just going to say no to that. Uh, I think if if it was better, I'd remember it because I, I do on other songs that I don't listen to as much. I, I know this song. I, um, the unfamiliar unfamiliarity at the beginning of the thing was just me being confused between that this and something else as soon as I clicked into the verses I was like oh yeah it's this one but I, d- I don't remember the mid eight and I, d- I don't remember it now um, and the, yeah and there's something strange musically going on with the Spanish guitar over the mid eight which just sounds like he's just tuning it up or detuning it 
No, it's it's like just a, doing a descending sort of pattern. Do, yeah, it sounds do, a bit do. bendy and weird, but but I generally like the Spanish guitar filters and the thick chord strumming and the harmonies. It's it's um a little bit mid albumy, like we said so, and not quite well, as it's hot. not it's end albumy, it's the last song on the record. Okay, um albumy definitely then. And not as ho- hooky as something like um And I Love Her, which I think is the better of the two. Um so I'm gonna give it but I'm still gonna give it sixty five for music because I do like it, so um, we got prob- there in the end. Yeah, we got there in the end. Yeah, production-wise, um, I mean, I've said already how nice I think the the guitar sounds. Um, and you're saying that that mid-eight solo bit is purposeful and not someone leaning on the guitar peg tuning pegs whilst he's playing it. No, no, there's a couple of little noises in there that you get, but that's that period of these recordings, but. I think the main thing with this production is it's 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 fine hard days night production. It's mm. it's exactly like the other stuff around it, like I can I love her and stuff like that. And so I think the main job in production was them working out the actual arrangement, shifting from the electric version they do to the acoustic sound and okay. those choices and decisions to get deciding not to do it as a six eight sort of you know. If you break my heart, I'll go. Like yeah. you can hear on the anthology version, which just doesn't work yeah yeah it's, it, I, I like um the, the sound i think this this period is great for these these acoustic-y folky sounding songs where they've just get a really warm um texture to them don't they um the, the the bass and the drums are quite subdued and they just kind of help it along it's and that you get a lovely strumming string noise from that classical guitar and the acoustic guitar you can really hear the um the the, the the strings being actually plucked and and hit you know if you if you know what I mean it's it's got a really nice uh, ambience to it so I'm going to give it seventy for production oh lyrics then uh, not much going on with the lyrics though very similar to, really to a lot of these don't leave me don't break my heart I'll go honest I will gov uh, but I'm not going to actually because I can't because I love you too much. It's you know it's that it's that kind of thing, isn't it? So yeah, it's uh, you want me if I leave, or will you? Or I don't know. Yeah, I'll come back. It's a bit yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just it's all right. There's not much to analyze. No, I, and it suffers a little bit, I think, because although it's the same as quite a lot of songs, I don't think the hook "I'll be back" works as well for the Beatles as it did for Arnie. Um, I think you know um, some of the other songs have a better, even though they're kind of, even Don't Bother Me is a bit more distinct. Yeah. Yeah, and then, then I'll be back. I'll be back again. Yeah, it's all right. But I'm only going to give it 37 for lyrics. So 57.3 overall. Finally, I'm a loser. Of all the love I have won or have lost There is one love I should never have crossed she was a girl in a million, my friend. I should have known she would win in the end. I'm a loser, and I love someone who's near to me. I'm a loser. I'm a loser, Paul. Well, uh, <laughs> you meant to disagree at that point. <laughs> I didn't want to say, did I? <laughs> right. uh. Uh, yes, 
okay, it's a Lennon song from Beatles for Sale, which comes out on 4th of December 1964. This is recorded on the 14th of August 1964, a few days before they meet Bob Dylan. Okay. Uh, but a little while after they've started listening to him. Yeah. And so I think it's unfair to just pin this song down as, oh, it's that first Dylanish one, but it's kind of that first Dylanish one, and that is more or less all you can analyse out of it mm. when you come to look at it. It's, yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's, um, it, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. We'll, we'll just have to get there with this, otherwise I'll just give, not give no, it away, I'll just have to. No, that's yeah. fine, yeah. Let's um, just get on with it. It's kind of like the folk equivalent to um, I'm Down, is it? It starts with Lennon this time doing a big vocal yeah, kind of opening. Um, but it's not as folk as I think I always think it is. It's more country and western. Well, exactly. I've got the note that I think it's kind of somewhere between Carl Perkins and Bob Dylan. Yes, I think, I think that's a, a fair a fair sort of summation. Yeah, so, you know, it's musically, though, it's it's uh, another excuse to start with a vocal refrain and have the music join in, come and join in, in with it afterwards, which it does, building up to the first chorus kind of repeat where by that point we're in full swing because it takes a little way around till we get into everything going on with the walking bass line, which I really like. The shaker and Ringo's snare pushing us along. Nice little bit of country riffs and a great harmonica, which we haven't had for a while anywhere. No, it's uh, interesting because, of course, these early Beatles records with the harmonica, they use it as a as one of the hooks of all of those early songs to sort of unify them is this yeah. is the Beatles sound. Then the harmonica tends to drop off a bit, but it's back here in, but it's back here in Dylan form. Mm. So yes, that's definitely the difference, isn't it? They're using it as a kind of rock and roll feature, and now they're using it as a folk yeah. bridge, a bridging type of instrument, really. Um, yeah, um, the solo in this is really good. I think the guitar solo, yeah. technically, yeah, a nice little bendy, weird yeah. sort of, uh, you know, and it's, it's one of the ones that you can, he's he's very good at these. But and also there these ones when we used to have the well, we we still have them, but when we looked at the tablature books and tried to kind of I try and learn his solos from your kind of complete Beatles tablature books these are this is one of those songs where you look at it, you're just like I don't know what's going on with this because ghost notes and hammer it's you no know, it's all very little yeah twangy twangly little bits going off here and there and it sounds kind of effortless but it's actually really hard to do these kind of solos um it's very catchy verses and choruses um I'm going to give it 70 for, for music because I think they're really owning this new style that they want to play. You know, straight away, they've gone, oh, you know, this Dylan chap, they're listening to him and thinking, yeah, I quite like that. And they just, I, pretty much, I, really, I wonder if they don't do much more like this because they think, yeah, all right, we've, we've got that down. It's not necessarily us, what we want to do forever, but we can do it. And they don't just do a Dylan, they bring the Beatles harmonies to it and they bring that, like I say, that Carl Perkinsy country sensibility too. So yeah, 70, I think, for doing something interesting with it. Good out. Production then. Um, I think they've also really nailed the feel and sound of this. Yeah, yeah. I'd agree. agree. Yeah, we've got some prominent shakers, but... um, Tambourines, Gary, that's a tambourine. Your nemesis slash... Shaky tambourines. Yes. But I don't mind that because they join in with the walking bass line and the, the whole pace picks up at that point and they kind of... It feels kind of uh, appropriate at that at that stage, rather than sounding like you put them on to help it pick up. You just put it on because it picks up, you know. Yeah. And I think the harmonica sounds great, as good as any 
Dylan record. Yes, well, I'm sure. Oh, no, I was going to be cruel about about uh, Bob Dylan's harmonica playing. <laughs> but uh, it sometimes it's a bit much. It's a bit suck blow, suck blow, suck blow. Uh, please don't clip that out and use that out of context. Um, uh, yeah, it's not. Oh, it's well. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a massive Dylan fan. I, I've never really. He, gone I mean, deep I, on Dylan. So I quite like Dylan, but yes, I think Lennon does as good as job, if not better, straight away on his playing. It's, well, he has the it's more subtle. He, he has the opportunity slash advantage of doing this as an overdub, so it's not like he's having to play and 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 do the harmonica at the same time. Yeah, I mean that might be it. Really, you know, um, I don't really know the ins and outs of how he recorded his stuff, but he definitely performed it that way, didn't he? So yeah, kind of like in between breaths after just singing the verse. So yeah, I guess um, Leonard might have worked it up more. Um, yeah. Well, there's just simple little good production decisions like the idea. And, you know, this takes in music slash production, but they John playing a 12-string acoustic gives it that shimmer that sort of runs all the way through it, which mm. gives it a particular sound because you don't get many Beatles songs with huge, massive-sounding strum 12-string acoustics. Yeah. You know, in the 12-string in Beatles songs is normally chiming electrics. So to have that on this is is quite good as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to give it 60 for production. Um, and we'll go on to the lyrics then. Um, so this is the kind of lyrical hook I was talking about being absent in I'll Be Back. Um, that statement, I'm a loser, kind of stands out, you know, straight away, especially as it's belted out right up front. And sets the tone for what is essentially still just a heartbreak song. You know, it's a bit of a lyrical joke in a way. You know, I'm a loser because I've lost someone, who, you know. But it's, um, so it's got a great kind of foil of using this double meaning um, of being someone who's literally lost something. And therefore, I mean, what, how would you define? I'm sure I've heard people talk about this as being him saying, look, I'm I'm not what I appear to be. I know I act like a clown, but obviously it is done in the context of being about a relationship. Do you think he's trying to tell him tell us something deeper here? Well, I think it, it probably, yes, because this is so obviously we've we've mentioned Dylan here. This is cited as one of these first big influencing ones. Yeah. You know, there's been a couple of Dylan albums out that their Beatles are, as the Beatles do, all obsessed with as a group of people. Yeah. But also what we've got is a story about um, on March 23rd, 1964, um, In His Own Right is released, so John's first book. Hmm. And John goes off to do uh, an interview at the BBC for a live programme that day, and he's talking to the guy, Kenneth uh, Olsop, who was the person interviewing him, and he's chatting in the green room, and the, the story goes that Kenneth Olsop's basically saying, look, I don't reckon your Beatles stuff, it's all she loves you, you know, they love each other, this, that and the other. Mm. So perhaps you could try doing something a bit more autobiographical, maybe. Right. And apparently this is yeah, this struck Lennon quite a lot. And it's something mm. he would talk he talked about to other people in later years, and this is where he's starting to do it with this sort of song. So he is sort of saying because Lennon, as everyone knows, swung between like complete self doubt but also then massive self belief. Mm. So he's God one day and he's just rubbish the next. And this is him sort of starting to address it a little bit. Yeah. And if you wanted to think about it as well, I don't think really think this is necessarily there, but he's he's talking about loss. Loss has already played a massive part yeah. in John's life at this point. You know, not just his mum, you know, Stu and all sorts of things. So lots of people who've been important to him have, uh, you know, all are all bound up, knotted, in, knotted up inside him. 
And maybe this is the start of him exercising some of that. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um, again, Ria, now you've said that, I think it doesn't make it actually clear at any point that he's talking about a romantic relationship, which I'm sure I've said exactly the same thing before about something where you've pointed it out. And I've gone, oh, yeah. But he's written it in a way where that's it can pass the ear that way. Yeah, and you you don't have to think about she was a girl in a million, my friend, and should have known she would win in the end. Is a bit of a strange one. Yeah. So it's it's not fully confessional or autobiographical or or. But if you start directed, but it's yeah. getting there. If you start from that point, that premise, you're still going to have to find those rhyming words, and yes. there are certain ones that just do lend themselves to kind of okay. And the win obviously puts itself in, in in opposition to the lose. So, and the she will come in, and it and it also does give away of kind of, you know, it's going to be some years yet till even John starts to kind of do songs which are literally this is how I feel about things without it being within a rapper as such. Yeah, uh, and you also think about in his own right and and a Spaniard in the works later as well. There's a lot of autobiography in that, but it's wrapped up in nonsense poetry. Mm. And he's always it's, hiding it. Yeah, sort of. This is this is him hiding things away, but it starts to emerge, and obviously this comes into fruition fully when he becomes a solo artist, particularly with Plastic Ono Band and things like that. Mm. It's great. Um, it makes good fodder for lyrics, whether it's you know taken at face value or either way. But I'm going to give it sixty for lyrics, which gives it sixty three point three overall. And that is it, Paul. Hmm. So we have one in the top 20, and the others have placed as follows. Out of 150 songs, I'm Down is 119. I'll Be Back is 78. Maxwell's Silver Hammer is 76. And I'm a Loser is 61. So we'll do a top 20. At number 20, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. At number 19, Because... At number 18, Glass Onion. At joint 1617, You Never Give Me Your Money and Yellow Submarine. At number 15, Long, Long, Long. At number 14, Getting Better. Sexy Sadie is number 13. Lovely Rita at number 12. Nowhere Man at 11. At number 10, Blackbird. Yesterday at number 9, The Fool on the Hill at number 8. Cry Baby Cry at number 7. Lady Madonna at number 6. Let It Be at number 5. And within you, without you, at number four. At number three, we have Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. I am the Warriors is number two. And Strawberry Fields Forever is number one. Thanks again for joining us, Paul. That's all right. I'm going to go and eat some human food in a minute. Ooh, sounds tasty. Are you sh- sure you're not a Terminator? Uh, I'll be back. <laughs> well, we will be back with our bonus episode. So we will see you then. Bye. Goodbye.